I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited, but I've just come into possession of a cure for insomnia. Listener to the good trash new cinema Ugh. where we and Dalton makes his ick noise. He doesn't like the name because it sounds pretentious, but the thing is, is that we're not doing pretense. As you may know, we have a regular show called the Good Trash Genre Cast where we talk about films in a scholarly way, about films that do not ever find their way into film studies syllabi. And what we're doing right now is talking about movies that are actually on the syllabus. We're going to talk about why they're art. We're going to talk about, we're going to do the analysis thing that we always do, but we're going to break it down Crayola style. We're not gonna we're not gonna leave the cookies up on the top shelf. We never do that anyway, and we're gonna break it down and we're gonna talk about these movies intelligently. This week's film is a film called Rashomon. But before we can do that, we gotta introduce ourselves. First of all, uh, coming in from a hole in the ground, uh, Mister uh, Beamed In via Skype, which they apparently have internet in holes. I don't know how. I have, your guess is as good as mine. Can you introduce yourself, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. And that's the truth. Or is it? Thank you very much, Arthur. We're so glad that you managed to find a connection to speak to us. Bringing color commentary somewhat distractedly um, and not especially paying attention. We're not even sure why he's here. To my left, if you'd introduce yourself. I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm Pat Sajak. You're stupid. For those of you with a, an eagle ear, that that is sometimes co-host, filmmaker, and friend of the show, Nick Sanford. Eagle eared. Eagle eared. Well, they can't be eagle-eyed spotters because they can't see us. It's radio, not TV. Exactly. Bat eared. Excellent. Well, Spur, who's doing the speaking just now? Introduce yourself. My name is Dalton Stewart, uh, and I like to talk about films and uh, I like sociology and stuff. Excellent. My name is Dustin Sells, and I do film study stuff and uh, whatnot. So. That's why I'm here, and I'm glad to be talking with you guys about a movie called Rashomon. It is a great legend in cinema studies. It is a specific, it is a specific genre in Japanese cinema. We in America have a thing called the Western. This would be something I guess you'd call the Eastern, which is history tales from feudal Japan, samurai movies. Just as we have gunslingers and cowboys, they got daimyos and samurai and uh, sometimes peasants working around in that feudal Japanese system, and the movie Rashomon is about that. We need to begin, though, with a quick review and just why this thing elevates and all that jazz, but we have a, a synopsis from the voice of NPR, Mr. Dalton Stewart, if you would, sir. <laughs> the voice of NPR. We don't like Terry Gross. I was going to try to do Ira Glass, actually. Okay. I can do that, though. A heinous crime and its aftermath are recalled from differing points of view. Yeah, that's about all that happens in that movie. And it's important to note, Dustin said, our quick reviews about why it's art. You know, on the Good Trash Genre cast, uh, again, neither of these shows are review shows. And on the Good Trash Genre cast, we just kind of let you know where we're coming from, what our biases are towards the film. With, with, with the Good Trash the Cinema, uh, the, the cultural consensus is that these films are good. And we don't really, we mostly focus on why they're art and not just another film. Or whether they actually elevate to the level yes. of art. Yes. If they elevate to the level of art, and if so, what what makes them art? Obviously, if we don't like a film, we're going to tell you. But I think 
the reason we don't really focus too much on reviews on this show is just because they're pretty much assumed to be good at this point. So we're going to talk about what elevates this movie. Again, our color commentator, we'll go ahead and begin with you. What do you think about Rashomon? Um, I got bored four sentences in on the Wikipedia page. I don't care. Well, thanks, Nick. We appreciate that. Arthur, what do you say? Uh, Kurosawa is using different tricks here. Obviously, he strays from the classical narrative right away by giving alternate narratives throughout and not giving a clear finale. Uh, this is a major strike against the classical style, as the classical style wants to make sure everything is clear and understood. A clear defining narrative is key in the classical style, unless genre uh, calls for something different, i.e. a mystery, uh, where obviously not everything's going to be given to us right away because that's the point of the movie. It's a mystery. And not so much here. We're just getting multiple tellings of a tale uh, to question truth and viewpoints and things like that. Uh, I think it is also important to note the use of a very small cast and very small sets. That's a very interesting stylistic choice, and um, it's very stripped down for this film. It asks a lot of the audience who is used to movies that have a lot of things going on as far as cast and setting. And from a stylistic standpoint, uh, Rashomon features heavy use of the lens flare, which at the time was not a prominent technique, but became quite common afterwards. Uh, thank you, J.J. Abrams, uh, which shows both the influence of Kurosawa and also the blob-like absorbing nature of the Hollywood machine. I think it is also important to remember the collaboration with cinematographer Miyagawa, uh, who I believe is making a lot of the photography choices here and is thereby affecting a lot of the artistic imagery, which may or may not throw a wrench into auteur analysis. Regardless, Rashomon has got a lot of artistic work going for it, and I think it's really pretty to look at, and it's a really interesting film. Huh. Dalton, what are your opinions? Well, you know, the thing that I thought about in terms of genre elevation, because as Dustin said, this is the Japanese equivalent of a Western, uh, as are a lot of the, the films from Akira Kurosawa. Um, but I think the thing that makes this interesting in terms of just being a, elevated genre-wise is... The, this unreliable narrator and, and to my mind it's the earliest film I can think of that really heavily focuses on this idea of unreliable narration and when you start to think about Rashomon you realize when you watch it you've seen Rashomon before I think every sitcom probably has at least one episode where something happens and the characters recount their understanding of what happened um, so the, the idea of the story of Rashomon this, uh, which was a novel or short story I don't even remember short story right Mr. Mr. Sells? It was two short stories That's by right. Kutagawa. Thank you. Um, th these are things that exist throughout culture and throughout storytelling and have been so influential, particularly Kurosawa's telling of these two short stories. Uh, and I think that's something that elevates us to more than just a, a whodunit. Uh, because essentially that's what it is. It's a whodunit with samurais. Uh, you know, who, who shot Liberty Valance, but, you know, with swords and shit. Um, right. But it's more than that. To, to me, this film is so interesting when you watch it because it, it's, again, not only about the morality and mortality and class systems, but it's also about this this really interesting look at, a, like, well, essentially a crime story. Uh, and instead of just being like, oh, we're going to look for clues, it's, it's looking at the malleability of truth and how people perceive events and why people lie and how people lie and it's just to me very interesting because you can look throughout storytelling over the last you know 50 60 years and see the influence of Rashomon on storytelling and I think to me that is kind of what puts this uh, elevates this in, in terms of just being a, 
you know, a, a crime movie with samurais. Aliens would make it better. Correct. I appreciate that, Nick. Thank you very much. Thank you also, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I would say what elevates this film to an extent is uh, it's, and this is what I normally talk about, is its influence, how it's moved cinema forward, how it always moves cinema forward. And these sort of films are, are highly influential. We find uh, references throughout uh, the rest of cinema. Now, what's great about this film is it's nonlinear mm -hmm. and it's interstitial. Now, we've had nonlinear cinema before. In, in fact, Citizen Kane is a nonlinear film. It doesn't happen in order. It begins at the end and goes to the beginning and goes back forward. But what's interesting about uh, this particular film is just how it's absolutely jumbled up and it's, it's difficult to reassemble. Citizen Kane's plump simple to follow. Mm -hmm. But this film, on the other hand, is, is, is taking great joy in some of its uh, difficulty. And there are other films that do things like this. I think about Chris Nolan's Memento as a great example, and it definitely cribs from that. The, the style of camera work where we're making much use of the sunlight and the weather and the rain, it is influential both backwards and forwards from John Ford back to John Ford and even forward to guys like Robert Altman and sort of the new Hollywood of the 70s. All of those filmmakers love Akira Kurosawa in all of his films. George Lucas, of course, the Star Wars films are based <clears> on a different film by Kurosawa called The Hidden Fortress, but this film is also influential there. Francis Ford Coppola's telling of Godfather Part Two is definitely cribbed and to a great extent from what we find here in uh, this film. And so there's all that great influence. And of course, you know, the apotheosis of, of pop culture referencing is when you have something like The Simpsons, where Marge is talking to Homer and saying, Homie, uh, Homer says something like he hates Japanese stuff, and Marge says, well, Homie, didn't you love Rashomon? And of course, Homer's response is, that's not the way I remember it. Which is hilarious. Yeah, that's a good joke. And uh, so those sort of references are all part of what elevates. This is this is a movie that everyone looked at, and then they began to do things differently because of this movie. Robert Altman tells a story on the Criterion release about how Kurosawa is is famous to be, and perhaps not actually should be credited as the first person to point a camera at the sun. That may or may not have happened, but it's definitely the biggest first time that it occurred that the most people saw a camera pointed directly at sunlight. And Altman talks about how he was shooting something for television, and he saw Rashomon. And the next day, he had a scene where he was shooting somebody on a swing, and he said, i got to get the sunlight in this, because he was just fascinated by the film. And that's the sort of influence that we're talking about with a film like Rashomon, uh, just stylistically, aesthetically. And so there's some brilliance there in this film. So let's move on, though, gentlemen. So, we, we, of course, the movie, we watched it. We all like it very much. It's, it's really good. Well, like Raja Boring. <laughs> it's one of the great movies of cinema, and so everyone loves it, except for Nick Sanford, who is a uncircumcised Philistine, and there's nothing we can do about that. I'm not a virgin. Huh. And so, thank you for that killer commentary. Let's move on, though, to our analysis of the film. Uh, Arthur, from the space station... What analysis bring you? Uh, with Rashomon, what I want to point out and what I want to highlight is just this use of the unreliable narrator, um, which, again, it's very interesting for a film, especially uh, any sort of narrative film, uh, to use an unreliable narrator as that is a huge contradiction to the goal, this goal of uh, putting the classical style first and the narrative first. Um, with the classical style, as I said, narrative is... is Number one, that's that's number one. Nothing else, uh, everything else has to be shaped to make sure it fits the narrative and puts the narrative first. In choosing an unreliable narrator or several unreliable narrators who we have no full relevate, uh, no full realization of being accurate, it withdraws and takes a huge check against that uh, that idea of putting the story first. 
um, because it puts a lot of existential thought here and it puts a lot on the audience watching uh, to make up their own decisions and interact with the film, which is typically not something Hollywood would like. And so that's a, a big thing here. Um, each person in the story gets to share their own perception of how the events went down, uh, which follows pretty accurately with how actual testimony goes. You ask five people to tell you how something occurred or what something appeared to be, and you will get five different sets of details while retaining a similar narrative thread. So we have certain events that happen. We have A led to B led to C. Um, but the way those skeletons are kind of filled out, the muscular tissue and the skin that kind of each person overlaps those skeletons with, uh, is what changes drastically between the, the, the five or so tales. Um, and this is an interesting choice to make. Uh, and the greatest factor in the film standing is art rather than simply good film. In refraining to give us a definite version of events, one in which we would have to trust the director to give, uh, we get a story that raises several thematic issues and makes this film more akin to a parable. Uh, the setup is similar to a bad joke, you know, a priest, a woodcutter, and a woman walk into a court, or something along those lines. Uh, there's kind of this sense of humor with Kurosawa, and he's really pushing his audience to, to think. And he's not giving you just, oh, here you go, here's the story, here, here's the facts. You try to figure out what you want it to be, uh, which is really reflective for an audience because different people are going to walk away with different viewpoints of what happened and which story was accurate. Um, and, and going with that and leaving the space for reflective meaning, it allows for the film to mean what we want it to mean, uh, something akin to what is seen in Shane Carew's Upstream Color. Uh, another film where the meaning is dependent on what you bring to it. A major trait of anything trying to attain artistic merit is this this reflective nature. Uh, art is a very reflective monster in any medium uh, that is presented: music, painting, sculpture, film. And so, as you know, with what we're doing here, uh, the use of the unreliable narrator uh, really affects that, as the meaning can change from viewing to viewing, from person to person. Uh, which makes this ultimately rewatchable on end as you try to pick out new things. But also, it's good for conversation, something that we here at the, the genre cast and do cinema uh, try to push, that, that conversation of film. And so, you know, you watch this, and then you can go out with friends and, and talk about what it means for hours on end and really, you know, get into some fun arguments and some fun debates about it, I think. So I think it's very interesting and is certainly worth checking out. Fascinating, Arthur. Good luck with that outbreak of space syphilis. I know that can be very troubling, and uh, watch out for space sharks. <laughs> All of those things. We move on now to Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say, sir? Well, you know, I, I talked already a little bit about the questions of morality um, and, and life and mortality in this film. Um, but one of the things that I, I was really struck by, which I already mentioned, was this conversation with class. Um, you know, so in the story, or in the, in the, throughout the stories told, most of them, other than the, the thief, uh, are, are wealthy people. Uh, you know, the ghost of the samurai, the medium who is presumably, you know, has a high class standing, um, the samurai's wife. Um, but some of the stories are not. You know, you get the woodcutter um, and the thief are, are both uh, from lower class standings. And all of the stories are being retold by these guys working on the gate and this beggar who's hanging out with them. So really, our, our main characters, in a sense, the people who frame the stories being told, are presented from people of a lower class. But more importantly than that, I think, is, is gender as a form of class. We get in this film several presentations of the samurai's wife. 
who is by all accounts in this film a hysterical and fickle woman. And what I think is happening is not that this is a sex... Including her own account. Including her own, yeah. And I think what's important to remember is I I don't think that this film is a sexist or misogynistic film uh, if the character, her portrayal, is sexist or misogynistic. But I don't think the film itself is. And I think that's because Kurosawa, I think, is trying to maybe have a conversation with women in Japan and their traditional place in Japanese society. And I think he is trying to, because it is so, like, unbelievably and heightenedly sexist and just weird and rape culture and, like, rape as a means of taking control of a woman. Um, and, and it's really troubling. And well, I, there are two things we know for sure that happen, and there is the rape of the woman mm-hmm. and the murder of the, of the samurai. Same. And the questions of whether or not it was a fair fight or whether or not the sex was consensual, all of these things... Um, or how consensual it was, if you can even say something like that, which I normally wouldn't. But it's a question that they actually get into. And again, I don't think Kurosawa is saying that those are legitimate questions. I think what he's trying to point out is that there was a time in Japanese society where those are the questions that were being asked, and probably at the time this film was made, they still were being asked. And, and I think he is trying to have a conversation with the mistreatment of, of women throughout his society that he was living in and trying to say, you know, we were doing that 400 years ago. We're better than that now, and we should be better than that. We should treat our women better than that. And again, I don't, you know, I didn't know Kira Kurosawa was a man, but uh, as an artist, I, I like to assume he was somewhat enlightened. Uh, and just uh, the reason it comes across to me as being probably not upholding those ideas is because they're all, they're so ludicrous almost to be almost comical a couple moments where it's just like this is just kind of silly and I think that was intentional and that was something I really took away from this film was was this conversation Akira Kurosawa seemed to be having with institutionalized sexism and and the treatment of women and the place that they were they were allowed to hold in feudalistic Japan and again presumably in post-war Japan so I, I really do think that's what he's trying to get at because it's hard to ignore when you watch this film. I it mean, is. if you're going to talk about this film, you really need to talk about that because it is such a huge part of the film and it is such a really troubling aspect of it. And that was kind of how I came to terms with it was realizing that what he was saying and what he was showing were two different things. No, I think it's right on. Very well done, sir. I appreciate that very, very much. Boring! <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Nick Sanford. Uh, the analysis I want to bring is actually contrary to other analysis I've brought before. Uh, you may or may not know, dear listener, that this is a lost episode that we're having to re-record. Yeah, this is actually the second time we've done this. Nick just left the house. That's, just, that's how bored he was. He's just done with us. So, so yeah, we, we, we've done this once before. Um, for listeners with the memory uh, on the main show, Good Trash Genrecast, we did an episode of Star Trek Into Darkness. We recorded this that same night. So, two months ago, we, we did this, and uh, we discovered the file had somehow gone missing, and, and we had to do it again. And tonight is the night we recorded our uh, The Dark Knight episode, and so that's why Nick's here, and uh, saying the, the area that... And why Arthur is still in his undisclosed location in the Nevada desert. Right, and we do hope that the nuclear testing um, is delayed in some way so he can escape. But, but we say all that to say this, that Dustin has actually changed his mind about his analysis. Is that right? Yeah, it is. My, initially, my analysis was like the, the coming of the postmodern condition, that sort of questioning of reality and, and knowing of truth. I, I talk quite a lot about the weather and how it kind of builds a storm in the life of both the, the Buddhist monk and of the woodcutter, and they're trying to deal with this sort of fuzzier truth that's a difficult fish to handle 
for these characters. And and that reading is certainly there, but that reading is very, very Western, it turns out. And it's part of the Western discourse of culture. I, I read a sentence out of Akira Kurosawa's Something Like an Autobiography. And the reason why it's something like an autobiography instead of a straight-up autobiography, he doesn't tell the story linearly. He doesn't tell all the details. He's only trying to tell the story in the ways that are perhaps interesting uh, in his mind to the reader. And what he says of Rashomon is that it is about the quicksand of human ego. And I want to offer that sort of reading because I think it might help us understand why the story is being told different. Because everyone is lying. It's not because they're telling the story differently. Everyone is lying because they're trying to save face. Toshiro Mifune's character as the bandit is talking about how he initially intended to rape this woman, but then she gave herself over to him because of his veracity. He's trying to cast himself as something between a god and a beast. And how he's amazing. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Dustin. I'm just trying to understand. Are you getting at... The stories aren't different because truth is malleable. You're getting at is the stories are different because everyone's lying. Right. And there is one tangible truth that did happen. Yeah, there's something that happened. If there was a camera in the woods, it would have been different than all the stories. Yeah, and I, I guess what you're getting at is that Rashomon isn't this idea that truth is malleable and, and, and it is that there is an objective truth. It's just a matter of the retelling of it of an event that changes. Well, Kurosawa is a humanist. He's yeah. trying to talk about how we can move forward as a society. And one of the things that we need to put aside in order to do that is sort of this emotional attachment to uh, our our projected, uh, presented selves. And the, 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 the bandit in question is trying to present himself as just the baddest dude there ever was, a man of both myth and legend, Robin Hood. Again, halfway between God and beast. And that said, if, if ever a man in Japan was a beast and a legend, it was Toshiro Mifune. No doubt. That's a cool guy, man. So he tells a story, and the way he tells it, he wants to rape her, but then she just gives himself because he woos her with his power and his prowess. He fights the samurai, and if you see the fight, it's ugly. Kira Kurosawa knows how to shoot a good sword fight. This is a bad... This is this is two men scrapping on the ground, but he talks about how no one's ever crossed sword with him so many times. He gives an exact number, the count of times. Mm-hmm. And again, it's because I am awesome, I'm amazing, and you better back up off of me. It, it is the thing that he's trying to do, because he's saving his face, and now I'm ready to face death with a head held high and defiant. I am Invictus, and that sort of thing. I really did get a kick out, speaking of the fights, though, I got a kick out of the different interpretations of the fights. Uh, because as I recall... The fight that the bandit recounts is the one that is the most stand-up, sword clashy one. Yes. And then the other tellings, I think the woodcutters is the one where they're just scrapping in the dirt. Right. I mean, I think it's really they're both pretty scrappy. But they're they're all fairly scrappy. There's some of them are more like traditional like samurai fight, and some of them are more just uh, two dudes just trying to kill each other. To, to, to a very limited extent, but yes, I, I agree. You, you know what I mean? Though? Yeah. Well, obviously they're not this they're not samurai. As, they're not as good as stuff you see as samurai or wrong. Yeah. Wrong. But, yeah. but yeah, that's what I think of is the d- devolution, I guess, uh, of the fight as it's represented as it gets grosser, meaner, Correct. and more uh, dog eat dog. I guess is what I'm getting at, and I thought that was interesting. I just thought about that while you're speaking. When the woman tells her tale, mm-hmm. of course, this is feudal Japan. Um, if you're raped, even, you're damaged goods. And so she's trying to find some way to save her own face. And she goes in these sort of hysterics and then suddenly recovers. 
and then tell the story because she's supposed to be hysterical. She's supposed to be terribly damaged, and she's been abused by the bandit, and she's also been abused by her husband. Don't look at me, she screams at him, right? Because he's become very cruel and hard-eyed, and so she has been mistreated and, and, and definitely abused, and she wants a ruling from the court to, to color back in that direction. When the Shinto priestess shows up in this very disturbing J-horror uh, version of necromancy, spooky, where the ghost of the samurai speaks back from the dead, he talks about what happens. Of course, he's betrayed by the woman, he's betrayed by the, the bandit, but he ends up dying by seppuku, by ritual suicide, mm-hmm. because that's the only way to be defeated in this way and still somehow manage to retain honor. Because he wasn't defeated, he defeated himself. Correct, and so he's trying to keep his honor in mm-hmm. that way. And interesting, in the telling of the story, as he talks about the, 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 the plunging of the dagger into his own chest, and it becomes dark and misty, you see in the upper left corner the, the priest and the woodcutter who've been listening to all these stories as the shadow progresses further and further over the characters showing the passage of time, that the priest looks away at the horror. And as he says... Then someone came and removed the dagger from my chest. That's when the priest looks away. And it's not overplayed, but the woodcutter makes a sort of gasp in horror. Because as we find out at the end and the telling, the woodcutter leaves out that he stole the dagger. I totally did not notice that. And it's very subtle. And again, it's not really so much saying there's truth to that, but perhaps he inadvertently caused the eventual. Of course, he killed himself. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you know, if you're impaled, you don't. That works. You leave so, that. Something is cauterizing, right? Didn't didn't that that is something that recurs in the tellings though? Is that the dagger is what killed him, it, right? It is, yeah, and it's missing at the end. Yeah, and of course it turns out the woodcutter had stolen it, which is the part of the story that he leaves out because he still wants to be just a victim of circumstance and somewhat baffled and confused. And everyone plays it sort of baffled and confused, mm-hmm. but he's baffled and confused. But he's hiding that that he stole his dagger because he doesn't want to be a mere thief like say Kishiro Mifune's character. So his telling of the story is about saving his face. And so everyone is doing... They're all fronting. They're all doing this thing to make themselves look better in the telling of the story. And what happens at the Rashomon Gate at the end is there's, a, there's an abandoned foundling child there. And what comes... Is that down, like a youngling? It is like a youngling, um, but not a Jedi. It's a samurai, which is a... Foundling. ...of the Jedi. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> and so what the what everyone has to put aside is all of their fronting and all of their reputation defending and whether you're a terrible person because you did a bad thing or a great person because you did a heroic thing is that can you be a person right now and do the right thing which is a much more interesting question because it seems that Kurosawa says that ego is a quicksand and if you fall into that you don't help anybody because the only person you're out to really help is yourself and so as a humanist, as the rain clears and the skies part and that great John Ford-esque shot as they leave the gate and the sunshine of the priest and the woodcutter walking off with the child, it's about putting all that ego aside and just doing what's necessary to help others. And I find that to be really, really valuable. And so I've kind of altered my analysis. I think the reading's still there because you always bring the baggage you bring to the movie. And this movie is doing a thing with truth and truth-telling to say it's more like poetry. And so you have those words, and so that sort of malleability of truth reading, I think it's still valid. But I, I don't know that it's as interesting anymore to me as this idea of putting aside you know, that sort of social projective self in this age of Facebook and Twitter where we all have these kind of manufactured selves and subjectivities that we create. And perhaps Kurosawa's film is speaking very much into the 21st century from the 1950s, and that I find to be very valuable.
Well, we're done. We are. That's our analysis, dear listener. We're so glad uh, you stayed and listened. Now, we got to do the last thing, though, which is our verdict. And our verdict about this film is whether it is art or not. Does it live up to the hype? And then perhaps what else you should watch. We're going to go ahead and say you should see it, even if we don't think it's up to the hype, because it's a big deal that matters. This is a movie that everybody cribs. So I ask you, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Honestly, I don't think you can make the argument that this isn't art. It's hard to acknowledge that because the tricks and techniques have been used so often since Kurosawa's masterpiece came out. But even in that, just the fact of this unreliable narrator and breaking that Hollywood style so badly uh, really elevates this to a different level. Not just because it's foreign. Uh, certainly that, that doesn't matter. Foreign films oftentimes imitate Hollywood and just produce narrative film. Kurosawa is definitely not doing that here. He's doing something much more. He's doing something much more intentional and much more uh, relevant, I believe, uh, for audiences. And he's really challenging viewers, and, and that's the key thing that makes this artistic is that it does challenge people to think and to work it out. I think you watch this with Forrest Gump, uh, Big Fish, Life of Pi, The Usual Suspects, all of which deal with these different narrators of varying degrees of reliability, uh, which is the key thing going on here, and I think those all are some fun movies. Uh, some some of them just about telling stories, some of them about viewing life, and I and you know just it all kind of works together, and it, it, I think they all pair well here with uh, Rashomon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's your verdict? Well, I think it is art, Dustin. I really do. I think uh, just in terms of again the originality of the storytelling at the time, I don't think the unreliable narrator necessarily now would make a film art, uh, but I think just in terms of the influence it's gone on to have and the originality of the idea at the time, I think that does kind of make it something quite different um, and, and worth seeing. And again, all these really hell, he hefty questions, although Helly might be accurate, uh, about morality and about truth, I think these are all really valuable things. Uh, and, and again, the skill of the filmmaking and the storytelling involved, I think it certainly is art. Uh, in terms of else, things that you should pair with this film, uh, I thought a lot about uh, modern uh, films that have unreliable narrators, and not just uh, non-linear storytelling, um, but really specifically unreliable narrators. Uh, the, one of the first things that comes to mind is, I think, a very clear descendant of this film. It's Christopher Nolan's Memento. Dustin, I actually believe you already mentioned that, didn't you? I did bring yeah. A, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely a good pick. Yeah, I, and I just, again, this idea of a man lying to himself and uh, how, how much can you know if you can't remember anything and how memory is so fuzzy. And I think other than lies we get in Rashomon is, is this idea that you can't really really remember exactly what happened. Um, and, and another Christopher Nolan film that deals with unreliable narration, The Prestige. Um, I, I would also recommend The Usual Suspects, not because it is non, you know, it's not really non-linear, it's a couple cross-cutting stories, uh, but in terms of the, the unreliable narration that we get from Kevin Spacey's character, uh, and his ability to twist the events as they happen. Uh, I think of another film, uh, Atonement. Um, I yeah. can't think of the director's name for the life. Joe Wright. Joe Wright, uh, who's made some films that I really dig a lot. Uh, Joe Wright's film, Atonement, um, which you know we find out, we don't realize it until much later in the film, but everything we've been told is unreliable uh, because it's a lie. Um, and, and again, uh, a really underseen frailty that Nick Sanford, uh, I'm sorry, an, an, an underseen film uh, called Frailty that Nick Sanford introduced me to with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Bill Paxton um, is another story where you realize by the end of the film that everything you've heard is a lie. Or maybe it isn't. 
and that's that's another film that I really thought about. So those are um, so that was what I thought about. Not necessarily non-linear storytelling, not necessarily multiple narratives, but really the idea of you have a character in the film that you know very early on or realize before the end that you can't trust a word they're telling you. So that that was what I thought about when I thought about pairing films with Rashomon. Is this this I, this way of storytelling, this narrative device? Thank you very much for that, Dalton. I, I think it lives up the hype. I think it's totally an art film. It's it's definitely superior filmmaking, mm-hmm. and uh, there are other films like it. It's been very influential. We Hype's talk. a good word to use. It it's, really is, because there's a lot of hype around this film, and it's earned every bit of it. Yeah, it definitely lives up to it. I think you should look at Casablanca, uh, because I think it's sort of a forerunner. I think you should look at Pulp Fiction, because I think it's something that follows. You mentioned Memento. I think Absolute I should be watched as well. Uh, I think you should look at some J-horror. I think you should check out Juon, which is uh, the, uh, the grudge. Right? I think, yeah, Ringo's The Ring, and I think Juhan's The Grudge. Right. And so take, take a look at those films and just sort of see its influentiality as it moves forward. Because, again, that scene with the Shinto priestess, uh, when you look at the imagery from Juhan, uh, I think it's very, very similar stuff going on there. And so that's uh, the, the value. I think you need to take a look at some Kurosawa, though. You've got to watch some other Kurosawa and just see what else he does. I think you should see more samurai stuff. I'll mem- I'll recommend a Technicolor samurai film. You should look at Kagamusha, which was produced by George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola for its American release. It won a Palm d'Or. It's pretty outstanding. It was on Netflix and has been for quite some time. So by the time we air this, it should be. And also, I think Kurosawa does another sort of uh, genre out, out of Japanese cinema quite well. It's the uh, which is the Japanese gangster film, the Yakuza film. And you should take a look at uh, Stray Dogs. And stray dogs. Stray dogs. That's no, not right. Yeah, stray dogs. Stray right. dogs. Yeah. Not straw dogs. Stray dogs. I, that's right. Oh, okay. I've yeah. never heard of this one. So take a look at that, and again, more of his yakuza stuff, and it's kind of funny. So that's fun times anyway. And those are our recommends, dear listener. Thank you so much for sticking with us and listening to this bit of programming, the spinoff show that we do. Next time we're going to go back to the states, and we're going to be looking at a film uh, directed by a cat called Sidney Lumet. Starring Peter Fonda. It's going to be 12 Angry Men. Something of an American classic. And uh, there will be a good time had by all. And it's a little bit more about telling the story and mm-hmm. how the story's told. And more mm-hmm. of really that Western question about the malleability of truth. Yeah, I, I think it's, 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 again, it's less the, how did uh, Kurosawa put it, the, the ego trapping. The quicksand you, of ego. The kicks, quicksand of ego. Yeah, I think really you get the malleability of truth, which is a much more Western interpretation of that. So that'll be exciting, and until then, um, watch a movie with somebody you care about, and we'll see you next time.